we have maybe a couple of visitors here today. Um, <laughs> um, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. You met my wife, Julie. She is uh, also a pastor here. She was the one who uh, got to hang out with all the cute kids earlier uh, this morning and dedicate them. So if you're here uh, for the baby dedication um, or for any other reason... We wanted to say thank you for being here with us this Sunday morning. You could be a lot of places doing a lot of different things, and you chose to be here with us, and so we want to say thank you so much for being here. Um, we hope you are blessing your time here at Res City. Um, so we have been going through the book of Daniel for a few weeks now, and we're going to be going for, it to, for, for a couple more weeks um, after, after this. Um, and what, I, what I'm doing today is kind of, it's part two of a sermon that we talked about last week. So I'll try to fill you in on what's going on um, in, in Daniel chapter 7. But before I do, I have a bit of a prologue. Uh, today's, to today's sermon, all right, to kind of set it up or try to help us make sense of what we are going to be talking about in the sermon, all right? So Jesus is at the very end of his ministry, and his, this close friend of his, a guy named Judas, um, who had been one of his closest disciples, a close friend of his, who Jesus had helped out of uh, some really, uh, probably a really messed up past, um, was now about to turn Jesus into the, the Sanhedrin, which is this Jewish religious body. Um, they, they, they oversaw the, uh, the, the, the temple worship in, in ancient Palestine. And so because of that, they had a lot of power, a lot of influence power um, over, over the life of the average Israelite. They actually were, despite not having any political power, they were very important in the life of everybody in Israel. And... Um, Jesus had been a real nuisance to them because he had been going around, he had been um, preaching this gospel, doing these mighty deeds, having this, this amazing teaching, and was, all these people were following him and starting to believe that God was working through this guy. And this had been a real nuisance to the Sanhedrin because it was taking away some of their influence, some of their authority, some of their power. And so they kind of realized, we need to do something about this guy or no one's going to listen to us anymore. No one's going to do what we are trying to tell them. And so, you know, they, they, they had um, they kind of hinted at maybe we can get this guy to join us and Jesus had declined that. Um, and so, so they decide, we got to get ahead of this. We got to bring him in for like a trial. We got to figure out what to do with this guy. And Judas is going to help them do that. So Judas shows up at this, at this after this um, after this uh, dinner that they've had as a group of disciples together, he walks in, he comes up to Jesus, he gives him a big hug, kisses him on the cheek, and then suddenly these guards come running in, these temple guards come running in, because that's the signal, that this is the guy that I kiss on the cheek is the one that, that is, you need to come in and arrest. All right? it, back in, in, in ancient Israel, they obviously didn't have newspapers or CNN or Instagram, so a lot of people wouldn't have actually maybe known what Jesus looked like. They made no, no pictures of him available, so Judas had to let them know specifically, this is the guy you're looking for. They come running in. Jesus doesn't put up a fight. He actually seems resigned to this fate. He lets uh, the, the temple guards take him. And so um, they bring him in the middle of the night to, this, to the, the, the high priest, the, the leader of all of the Sanhedrin we're talking about. He takes him into their temple, um, the, high chief, the chief priest's residence, which is where all this stuff takes place, right? The, the, the chief priest lived actually in the temple. Um, and then it's the middle of the night because it's a very urgent thing. But they also don't want to cause a stir because they know how important Jesus is in the life of all these the common people in Israel. So they don't want to have a bunch of people seeing what's taking place, that he's being arrested. So they try to arrange it all for the middle of the night. They had to get everybody up. 
so they could come and be a part of this trial. And they're all sitting here waiting for Jesus to show up. This, for many of them, this is the first time they'd probably ever seen him, and for sure the first time he'd ever faced them um, and, and been uh, required to uh, respond directly to them. So it's a big moment. And so make no mistake about what's going on either. This is a trial, right? Like I said, they don't actually have any political power, but they're kind of putting together their own trial to decide what to do with this guy because he's been messing everything up. And if they decide it's worth it, they're going to try to take him to the Roman governing authorities to try to actually have a legit legal trial go on for him. They bring in their own witnesses who embellish accounts, the things that Jesus said, try to twist it, make it look different than what it actually was. And so they reach a point where the high priest is like, this is getting pretty bad. We're going to give this guy, Jesus, a chance to, uh, to respond for himself, though. So he takes a deep breath. And he asks him the question that everybody had been wondering. Even Jesus' own disciples, if you go read the Gospels. This is a question they have throughout the book. And Jesus is very hesitant to even respond to them, um, although he eventually does give them an answer. But no one outside of this group had ever heard Jesus answer the question, are you the Messiah? Are you the one who is going to come and liberate and rescue Israel? Or is that at least who you think you are? This is what you think you're trying to do. The high priest uh, draws a deep breath, he clears his throat, and he finally asks him the question, are you the Messiah, are you the son of the blessed one? And Jesus pauses, and he responds to this question by saying, I am, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. And after he says that, there's an audible gasp in the room, right? No one can believe what he just said, because they know exactly what he's saying. He didn't just answer the question, yeah, I'm the Messiah, but he had done so in a way that had um, set off all these these bells in the heads of these people who had been studying their, their Hebrew scriptures their whole lives. They knew it very, very well, and Jesus had just quoted to them from Daniel 7 that he was not just the Messiah, but he is also the one who is at the very center of this great passage. Now, Daniel 7, we talked about this last week. It's this, it's this becomes, especially in the first century and around this, what we would call the second temple period of Israel, this incredibly important passage for uh, people of Israel because they're waiting for God to show up and do what he promised that he would do in this chapter in Daniel 7. And I'll recap that here, here for you in a little bit in case you are not unfamiliar with the passage. But Jesus has, had, had just referenced the passage, but he, that wasn't the thing that shocked them, though, because everyone was expecting this to take place. He had done it in such a way that he had applied the central character of it to himself, And so for the Sanhedrin, this situation had gone from bad to worse. It had escalated beyond what they'd expected, and now they knew they had to do something about Jesus. All right? So so like I said, that's a prologue to what we're talking about today, because we're going to be talking about the Son of Man passage in Daniel 7, but to really get the force of it, we have to understand how Jesus applies it to himself and the setting that he's in in order to really get the weight of it, in order for it to really be applied in any sort of real sense. So I kind of wanted to set that up for you. Now, before we get back into the passage, before we, we actually go back to Daniel 7 and read the verses for ourselves, I, I 
just want to recap what happened last week. So Daniel 7, if, you, if you've ever read through Daniel 7, you probably left it very confused unless you had some help reading it. Because it's a really weird passage. Daniel has a dream. Daniel is the main character of the book of Daniel. Um, and he, has, he helps people interpret their visions. But he finally has one of his own in Daniel 7. And he is uh, on the seashore in these four great grotesque terrifying beasts come out of the water and are causing chaos and havoc in God's world. Now, the beasts, we find out, represent um, massive forces that are, are destroying God's world. Now, they're specifically applied to kingdoms, but when we um, move beyond, the interpret, beyond that specific interpretation, we find out there are these beast-like presences that are operating in the world all the time, causing chaos, havoc, uh, evil, and, and we can't really do much about it, and so they just end up terrifying us. Um, but what Daniel finds out is that God is actually aware of all this, and he's going to do something to judge it. Now, I left out what Daniel says that God actually does to judge the situation, and we're going to talk about that this week, because that's where the Son of Man really comes into it all. All right, so let's just get into the passage. We just have four verses today that we're talking about. Daniel 7, verses 11 through 12. Let's, let's start by reading that. So then I, this is Daniel, continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. Now, again, like I said, this is kind of weird, right? There's a fourth beast. It's greater and more terrifying than all the other beasts, and it has a little horn that comes up. The horn starts talking. You know that you're not supposed to interpret this literally when a horn is, is talking, right? Um, he starts speaking and boasting against God in heaven, and this is what kind of causes God to finally act now. I kept looking until the beast, this is the, the, that fourth beast, was slain, and its body was destroyed, and it was thrown into the blazing fire. Now, there are three other beasts, and, and kind of in a parenthetical, Daniel says, the other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but they were allowed to live for a period of time. So we find out that this, that this last beast, this most terrifying one, is slain by God. These other four beasts have some authority. We find that out in the last passage that God has allowed them to exercise. But now he's going to strip them of that. And we're asking ourselves, well, what's going to happen to that authority? Who is going to reign and rule over the earth if these beasts that are running around causing terror aren't doing it anymore? And we get an answer here in the next verse. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So this figure, this cryptic, hard-to-even-describe figure shows up, and he is given all this authority that the beasts originally had to now rule in God's world. He comes uh, forward to the judge who is observing what's going on, the one who has the ability to do something about evil, and is given that authority and now reigns peacefully in God's stead. Now, the Son of Man's appearance, we have to understand, is, is tied to the beasts. It's the response of God to the beasts is to have this Son of Man come and approach him and have the authority of the beasts go to him. Now, here's the thing. In this passage, this is super, super cryptic. And it would be super helpful if we would have gotten an interpretation as to who the Son of Man was because we get interpretations from an angel later in the passage identifying the four beasts. We know the Ancient of Days is God, but the angel who's helping Daniel understand what's going on doesn't actually tell him who this Son of Man is. That's left to, 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 up to, to just be a total mystery. So Daniel has no clue what's going on what's here other than this, this 
weird son of man figure comes and, and takes over. All right? Now, what do we know? What can we glean from the passage itself? Uh, this character comes from God, and his kingdom is, he's taking the authority of the beast, but his kingdom is totally different, right? He comes from heaven. He is eternal. Um, there is going to be worship of this character, and, and he shares some qualities with God. Again, this is very strange. This would have been very odd to someone like Daniel or someone who in the first, a Jew who's reading this in the first century or, or, or earlier to understand what, what this means. Um, and we know this figure comes on the clouds. Now, what, what does this mean? Um, it doesn't mean that he supermans his way in, all right? He doesn't come flying in from heaven. We're not supposed to take this as like a literal picture necessarily of, of someone showing up flying in. The, coming on the clouds is actually uh, language that's supposed to reflect that this character is in some sense divine. Because whenever in the Old Testament we get pictures of clouds, we're supposed to understand that God's presence is accompanying it. A couple of examples, if, if you go back into the book of Exodus, right, this is the book where um, Israel gets taken out of slavery, you remember that they're led in the desert, if, you, if you've read Exodus at least, you remember that they're led in the desert by this pillar of cloud, and we know that that's God's presence. And then eventually, this pillar of cloud that's kind of roaming along on its own, and it's kind of uh, having the people of Israel follow it, they, they build it a house. They build it the tabernacle. This is this supposed to be this portable tent that the, the presence of God is going to reside in whenever they stop in a location. And when, we, when the, that tabernacle is built, this is in Exodus 40, I believe, the, the imagery is of this great cloud descending on it. Now, for a long time, the tabernacle was the place where God's presence hung out until eventually uh, King David and his son Solomon come up with the idea to say, we should probably build a more, port, like a more permanent home for God's presence to reside in. And so they build this beautiful, massive temple. And in 1 Kings 8, when that temple is finally finished and they're dedicating it, God's presence comes and rests on it in the form of a giant cloud again. That cloud wind imagery is the, the, the thing we see again. Now, this temple has been destroyed, uh, we find out, at the beginning of the book of Daniel, and they've all been taken into exile. It seems like it's all fallen apart, but here we get that presence again, and it's showing up as the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days to do something about evil in the world. Now, we know that Daniel 7 is a really popular passage in the first century, and, but, but the parts of it that are really popular are not necessarily the Son of Man thing. There were different theories as to who this guy might be and how he plays into what God is doing, but there's no real consensus about it, and no one knows exactly how it's being applied. They know the hope of Israel is somehow tied to this figure. Some people thought it might have been all of Israel. Some people thought it might have been the Messiah, right? But, but they didn't really know how to understand it until Jesus shows up on the scene and applies it to himself. It's the first time we get any sort of uh, uh, fulfillment of that passage is when Jesus shows up. Now, Jesus, if you've read through your Gospels, you know that Jesus actually uses the, the terminology of Son of Man to describe himself many times. He actually does it between our four Gospels. He uses it 81 times to describe himself. And it's actually the most common reference that we have to other than just the name Jesus, when, when someone is talking about Jesus, including himself, the Son of Man is the second most common thing that is used to re refer to him. But 
This passage that I started us off with, where he shows up before the Sanhedrin and he's on trial, it's the first time he ever specifically ties that son of man language back to what's happening in Daniel 7. And this is really important, and it's the thing that gets Jesus killed, okay? So if he wasn't planning on doing it, it was a big mistake. Thankfully, it was his plan, right? Um, and, and so it actually, he gets charged with blasphemy. Now, why does he get charged with blasphemy? Um, a couple of reasons, probably. We don't actually know for sure why. They just say, this is blasphemy, and we got to take this guy off and get him, uh, do something about him. But probably, there are two reasons why. First of all, um, Jesus is hinting, right, by association that he is divine in some way. He is, God's presence resides in him, okay? Now, that's a, that's a pretty radical thing to say. And if you're a Jew, it's, it's not just radical or strange. It's actually offensive because God is the type of God who doesn't even have idols made to him, let alone have some human claim to be having his authority. All right? We take it for granted as Christians now that Jesus is God, but that was like not an easy thing to sell people on right away when Jesus is telling people that, especially religious authorities who believe God's presence is not in a person, it's in the temple, and we run the temple, so how dare you, right? So that's the first reason. The second reason, and this is a little bit more subtle, but it, it, it's just as explosive, is that Jesus is turning the tables on this whole trial proceeding. Remember, like I said, Jesus is on trial. We have witnesses coming forward. The chief priest is kind of acting like a judge in this sense. Remember also, Daniel, back to the last week, Daniel 7 is also a court scene because when God shows up later in the passage, I didn't read this to you, but he opens up these books, like the books that keep track of records for right and wrong, and, 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 and he's going to make a judgment on the beasts uh, according to their deeds, right? So it's, it's a court scene. God is the judge who shows up. Jesus is saying, yeah, you're right, you Sanhedrin. This is a trial, but I'm not the one on trial. You guys are the ones who are on trial because I'm showing up. I'm fulfilling Daniel 7 right now. And by association, he's saying, you guys are the ones who are causing havoc and evil and destruction in God's world by the practices and the false worship that you guys have. Rejecting me and rejecting God truly, you are doing what the beasts are doing in Daniel 7. And I'm here to judge you for that. I'm rendering my verdict on you. Now, we talked last week about how what, what, what's going on in Daniel 7 and other passages like it is a specific uh, genre that we find in the Bible. We find it in places like the book of Revelation as well, um, other parts of Daniel, and a few other places in the Old Testament. It's actually, like I said, a genre of, of writing where what the goal is, it's called apocalyptic, and apocalyptic is this a Greek word that means uh, the apocalypse, it means revelation. So what it is, is it's revealing the way things truly are from God's perspective. That's what this type of genre is supposed to specifically do. And it uses symbols and imagery to try and uh, communicate that. What Jesus is doing here is he's unmasking or revealing the situation that he's in as a great trial that's going on where he's the judge. Right? So this apocalyptic thing, this revealing of what's going on, the way things actually are, is taking place in this court scene, this trial scene that Jesus is on as well. And here is our big point in our passage today. Right? Daniel 7 is only fulfilled by Jesus, and Jesus is revealing to us how that all plays out. And only on the cross is the judgment of God on evil and chaos and sin going to actually be enacted. Okay? Now, you guys are probably like, cool, 
I've heard that in a lot of sermons, right? Um, That's not necessarily like a new thing to me, but I actually want to talk about that. Um, If we're honest, we we understand the gospel. We've heard that Jesus has come. He's done something about evil in the world. We've heard that many times, right? And if we're being honest, that gets kind of boring and stale to us. To hear it all the time, right? It just kind of goes in one ear and comes out the other a lot of times. Like, it's not something that we still resonate with. Or when we hear it all the time, we are like, cool, I get that. Can, you, can we talk about something different today, right? Um, last week, we, we talked about um, like things being revealed to us. And I want us to talk about what it's like to reveal this truth to ourselves over and over and over again. Now, we have a lot of visitors here today, right? Raise your hand if you're from, like, not from the Twin Cities. Okay, so that's like a pretty good, pretty good group of you. Um, okay, so I did, I've not always lived here my whole life. I am from northern Minnesota, and then I lived in Fargo. I went to school there after that. I remember growing up and then being in Fargo, I thought the Mall of America was like, Super cool. I was like, the Mall of America is awesome. Whenever I go down the Twin Cities, I want to make sure I try to hit up the Mall of America because why not? It's like this amazing, massive building. I can buy anything I literally want there and lots of things I don't need or want there as well, right? Okay, since I've moved here, though, I think I've been there once. And I'm pretty sure it was with my parents who were visiting and wanted to go there, all right? When you live in the Twin Cities, the Mall of America just kind of becomes like, not a big deal at all. It's actually, you're like, I kind of want to avoid that place because there's going to be a lot of people there. It's a museum. Parking will be a nightmare. Um, like, no thanks. <laughs> I'll just buy something on Amazon instead, all right? Okay, so, but here's the thing. I, I was, like, recently looking at some information about the Mall of America, and I was like, wow, this place is actually really impressive. Did you know that the Mall of America attracts 40 million visitors a year? Did you know that, um, that it generates $2 billion a year in revenue for the state of Minnesota? Uh, did you know that it takes 100 pounds of food to feed the animals in the aquarium every single day? Have you ever been in the aquarium? It's really cool. It's super cool. There's so many animals that are swimming around. It, it actually, like, it's really a big deal to feed all them animals. You probably never thought about that, right? But it's a, a massive feat to, to, to pull this off every single day. Right? On any given day, the Mall of America, just, if you just take the people that are inside that, or that, that come through it in a day, it becomes the third largest city in the state of Minnesota. That's crazy, right? Like, it's, it's actually inside of like, a city already, and it becomes bigger than the population of that city and every other city in the state of Minnesota, just by people being there. Um, did you know that like, the, the Mall of America doesn't have any central heating? We live in Minnesota, for crying out loud, and this building doesn't need to heat itself in the winter because so many people are in there that they generate the heat on their own from their bodies. Isn't that crazy? Have you ever been inside this thing? Apparently, you can fit like seven Yankee stadiums inside of this building, and they don't need to heat it because so many people are walking around warming it up on their own. Um, you could go and if you went into, this, into the Mall of America and you spent 10 minutes in every store of the mall, you'd be there for 86 hours. Okay, that's how big of the place this is. I bet a lot of you people who live in the Twin Cities had no clue about that stuff, right? But we get bored of the Mall of America. We don't realize how incredible of a place it is. Um, it has to come from people who are outside of the Twin Cities to even remind, I think the guy who wrote this article definitely doesn't live here, right? Okay, that I was getting this information from. But how incredible is that stuff? And I was like, I take it for granted. I don't think it's a big deal. I don't ever want to go there. I think it's actually kind of a nuisance to go there. 
I think that we have that view of the gospel a lot of times. We have that view of Jesus, the Son of Man, coming on the clouds of glory, doing something about evil in the world. We get that same view about that that we do about the Mall of America a lot of times. And, and I think that the, the thing that we need to do in order to keep the gospel from becoming boring or stale is we need to unveil, we need to reveal to ourselves what's going on over and over again. Just like we talked about what Jesus is doing in that situation with the Sanhedrin or what apocalyptic as a genre is trying to do by using these um, big, weird, symbolic pictures to try to communicate some truth to us, the kind that are like grab our attention and doesn't let go, right? Seems mysterious, but we want to keep coming back for more to understand it better. We need to be able to do that in our own hearts to understand the gospel over and over again, to keep it uh, from becoming um, boring or, or stale. Um, so, so I want to talk a little bit about that today. I want to talk about ways that we can do that to ourselves to, to be reanimated, to reveal the gospel to us over and over again. Now, so remember where this vision comes to us from. It's coming to us in the midst of these four beasts, right? And the vision of, of Jesus coming on the clouds with glory to do something with the beasts only is really great news because these beasts are here. Now, I talked last week about how we tend to numb ourselves to the presence of evil or bad things in the world. We are trying to self-medicate ourselves with Netflix or our phones or, or all sorts of different things that we're trying to grab our attention away from the fact of it. And I kind of said, we need to deal with, we need to like, don't run away from it. If, if you can run away from evil in the world, you're actually super privileged, but you're just, you're, you're turning a blind eye to the way that the world really is, right? And if only when we understand the world is actually a really messed up, dark place, is the gospel going to actually shine through really brightly. I talked last week about big stuff, outside stuff, right? The, the stuff that really pairs well with the beasts. Things like racism, uh, systematic racism, shootings, terrorism, poverty, the opioid crisis gets a lot of play on the news here, right? The, we just have all these uh, conflicts in the world that are going on that we can pretty easily turn a blind eye to. But in order to really have the glory of Jesus showing up and doing something about it, we have to re realize what a problem it is. Now today I want to talk a little bit, though, about another aspect of evil in the world. And it's not out there, it's in here. All right, so kind of the first way that we reveal the gospel to ourselves is to not be afraid to look inside of us and to just kind of deal with what's there. All right, I think a lot of times we, we don't want to do that. Because deep down we fear go looking inside of us a lot of times, right? We're afraid of what we'll find, and, and, and we, don't want to, we don't want to do it because we don't know what's going to be in there, and we're afraid it might not be a good thing, right? When we really look inside of ourselves. Now, this is another thing I think that Jesus unmasks for us. Because when, when, like I said, Daniel 7 is a super popular passage, and everyone's waiting for the Messiah to show up. But they all kind of expected him to be the type of Messiah who kicks the door down and, and kills all the bad guys. And Jesus doesn't do that. He actually shows up and says, instead of killing the beasts, I'm going to have to die. Right? which should unveil to us that there's something more going on here. There's something deeper, and that includes us. This gets wrapped up in us because we know Jesus dies for us, for our sins. Right? To do something about the evil that's out there in the world by doing something about the evil that's inside of us, the sin that's inside of us. And, and to talk a little bit about this more, I actually want to use like, how we do this, how we understand and look at that, what's going on inside of our own hearts so that we're not afraid to do it. I want to use the help of a philosopher by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. Has anyone ever heard of Soren Kierkegaard? 
One, one, two hands went up. Okay, good. Three hands went up. Four hands. Okay, thank you. All right, cool. So Soren Kierkegaard is a he's a Christian Danish philosopher. He lived from 1813 to 1855, um, and he wrote a lot of books that are really hard to read and and tough to understand sometimes. I want to talk about a few of them today, or what he talks about in a few of them. The first one is called The Sickness Unto Death, and in this book he talks about despair a lot, a lot, a lot. <laughs> okay, but when he talks about despair, what he means by that word is, um, is like despair is not being in right relation to God, and 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 not feeling quite right, and knowing something's not right, but not necessarily knowing how to what to do about it. So we feel this discomfort because we're out of right relation with ourselves and with God. All right, and he calls that despair. And only through Christ can we be removed from this despair. He says the only way to escape these three types of despair that I'm about to talk about is through, is a, it's a Christian thing alone. That's the only way to really get out of these three types of despair. Now, the first type of despair that he talks about is not really despair. It's actually ignorance of despair. It, it's, it's not knowing. It's kind of just going through life, not knowing anything is wrong, trying really hard to not look inside of ourselves and, and deal with what's there. He's talking about people, like someone who's super unreflective, who doesn't want to look inside their heart at all and spends all their time just looking out there and trying really hard to, to be enamored or, or dealing with all sorts of stuff that's going on outside as opposed to looking inwards, okay? Because they they're afraid of what might be in there, right? And so they just say, I'm not going to deal with it. I don't want to look inside me. I don't want to try to figure out what type of person I am or what's, what's wrong down there. I'm going to think about all sorts of other stuff. And so this person is always self-medicating and looking looking around for different things. Um, he obviously doesn't use these examples, but I think like being on social media all the time, never looking inside, or trying to, trying to create an image of ourselves that is that you can only see through pictures on your phone would be this type of person. Um, someone who, who is uh, try, very materialistic, right? Always thinking about what's the next thing I can get? What's the next thing I can get? How can I get there? And tell me how to get that thing. I don't want to think about myself. I want to grab the next thing. People who are living vicariously through some other thing, right? Whether it's celebrities or sports or TV shows, this is all they're thinking about because they don't want to look inside. That's a type of despair, Soren Kierkegaard says. Now, a lot of times, once you move out of that phase of despair, you move into the second level of despair that he calls, and this, or that he talks about, and this is just realizing you're not the ideal you. So once you do finally look inside, you realize, whoa, I, like, I have a picture of myself that I definitely am not fulfilling. And so I better do something about that. I better like, work my way to try and, and become that person. Right, And so it works its butt off. It's trying really hard to become that ideal person, that, that ideal image of itself that it has deep inside of them. And, and you can see that this person is stuck in despair because they just keep thinking, I just got, if I can work a little bit harder, I'll finally get to be that ideal person. Right? Oh, I just got to do, I got to do this thing. Okay? And then I'll finally be that ideal version of myself that I so badly want to be. All right? And there's always something next. And that's a type of despair, he says. Now, the third type of despair, again, this is when you kind of have to move through these three sometimes sequentially, is when you finally realize that you can never be that ideal person you want to be. No matter what that vision is, you will never, ever get there. And so this type of despair is, 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 is the despair of the person who realizes they're stuck with themselves, right? And they can't do anything about it. Nothing that they do is going to change the disappointment with realizing that they're not the person that they really want to be. 
right? And, and, so, and so even people who are, I think, a lot of times super successful, a lot of times they're stuck here because they, 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 they're very aware of their limitations, of their blind spots, of their vices, of their past failures, of their guilt. They know they can't escape it, and they don't feel like they have an answer to get out of that despair. Deep down, they, they realize, I'm a fraud. Everyone else might think I'm great, but I just do not think I'm actually that person. I don't think I can ever be, all right? So these are the three types of despair that Kierkegaard talks about. Now, his answer to this, he talks about it in another book, a book called Concluding Unscientific Postscript, real New York Times bestseller, right? The title alone really grabs you, um, Okay, but he, he talks about in that book, his answer to this is what he calls this taking this leap of faith, right? He doesn't actually use that terminology, but that's how most people who've studied Kierkegaard since then have talked about it. He says, you need to quit thinking about it, right? You need to move out of this place of despair, and you need to take, you need to make the decision to jump and trust that Jesus is going to catch you, and he's going to make you that person you want to be, and that you don't even need to be a certain type of person in order to be in right relation with God. Right? And this is, the, this is the gospel. But he really emphasizes the fact that we can't just, it can't just be something that we believe, that we know in our head, that we look back on sometimes and say, yeah, I remember saying a prayer once, or I remember uh, doing something that forgave me my sins, right? but, but I don't really think about that much. He says, no, you've got to make that, you've got to make that leap. It has to be an inner choice to jump and to trust that God is going to catch you when you make that jump. Um, he, he talks about how this... That taking this, this is a, it's an inner, inner, inner choice that knows it can't control where you're landing necessarily. But you've got to make that jump, and it's got to be something inside of you, something deep. And and for us to kind of bring this back to the passage, we have to take this leap of faith, oftentimes to uh, to believe that the world is the way that God and Jesus have revealed it to be. Right? What we're talking about in Daniel 7 and, and what we see happen again with Jesus before the Sanhedrin, it's something we need to, to believe that the world is actually this way, the way that is being revealed to us in these passages, even though we don't feel that way a lot of times, or even though we're stuck in one of these types of despair. Right? To break out of terror, despair, and boredom, we have to trust God. We have to jump fully onto him. And only then are we going to be truly who we're meant to be, truly and fully secure us only through trusting him. Now, the power of the beasts, the power of evil in the world wants to keep us in these three types of despair. It wants to keep us numb, ha- fat and happy, right? It wants to keep us striving to save ourselves in some way, right? Striving to think we, if we can just get to be that ideal person, then everything will be okay. Or it wants to keep us hating ourselves because we're never going to be that person that we want to be, stuck in that third type of despair, right? But when people take that leap of faith, Kierkegaard says, to see the world as Jesus reveals it to be, then the beasts lose their power and we become truly and fully Jesus's. Now, here, here's the thing. We're going to get stuck in these types of despair and the, we're, it's not just one leap of faith. Like, this is something we have to be doing constantly is, is jumping, taking this leap of faith, something we need to find ourselves doing over and over and over again. And we need to be, do, we need to be very aware of that need to do that constantly. Now, I want, I want to talk about just kind of close with two practical ways to, to do this, to reveal the gospel to ourselves, to take this leap of faith that Kierkegaard is talking about. The first is to just remember, okay? This doesn't seem that profound, but think about how often we're always looking forward to the next thing. We're, we're always looking to some better version of something, 
This is how we're conditioned to think. Just think about even as simply as, like, you have a phone right now. I imagine you all have a smartphone in your pocket, and you're all aware that within a year, at least, Apple or whoever is going to come up with a new version of that phone that is, you know, way better. So it's ten times better than this last version, and, you know, you can drop a a brick on it, and it's not going to break, or you can send it down a waterfall, and you'll be able to go down and pick it up and make a call with it afterwards, right? Just like, there's always some better version of everything we think. And so we're always looking forward to thinking, like, in the future, we'll find some better version of what's going on, right? Think, think about, like, how we're always waiting for the next thing. We're always waiting for some new thing to come in. Did you know when you get a text, your, your brain releases dopamine? Like, you get excited, when, when, when a text comes or some notification comes on your phone, which trains us to always be thinking and waiting for something new to come. It makes us get bored a lot easier. But that's the way our brains are wired, is to always be looking forward to the next thing. And so, and so we have no rituals to cause us to look back. And so I think when we look at the gospel, if we're someone that's been changed and transformed and believed the gospel, it gets boring to us sometimes because it's something that happened in the past, but we're waiting for God to do something fun and cool and new in our lives instead of truly reflecting on what happened to us and looking back and seeing the magnitude of that. Right? The gospel is all about looking back, believing that one event in the world and us as a result are changed forever because of what happened when Jesus is revealed as the Son of Man, when he goes up on that cross because of that trial and rises again, and we respond to it. That is us, has unending relevance for us. So, so let God worry about the future, and we need to be people who spend more time looking back, reflecting on what God has done. And we need to put, we need to put habits to get us to do that more often. We need to have backward-looking habits. Right? We need to actually take time to look back, because we're not going to do it if we, if we don't. And so some of the really like, you know, normal things, prayer is actually looking back. Reading scripture is looking back, because we're looking back at God's past faithfulness with different people. Listening to worship music causes us to look back. Um, journaling, meditating, spending good time in community with other people of God who are going to encourage you to look back at the gospel. This is all going to help us to, to remember. But something as simple as literally just not listening to the radio or music in your car when you drive to work and just, ref- if, especially if you're going through a hard time and thinking about the ways in which God was faithful to you in the past, that has such a transforming power for us in the future. But we don't take advantage of that because we're always looking forward to the next thing, okay? So, so challenge yourself to look back, look back at what God has done. And then a third thing I'll say, or, or I guess a second thing, is to worship, to truly worship. Now, lots of worship today is about, it's about me, right? Or it's about, it's about you, right? That's how we approach it. We like worship a lot of times because it gives us some feeling. It just, it does something for us. We really like it. And if it's not doing that anymore, we'll try to maybe find some new worship music or let's quit listening to worship altogether, right? Worship is not designed to just give you some feeling, right? Worship is designed to lift our eyes higher and to reveal Jesus coming on the clouds with glory to us. That's what worship is supposed to do every time we engage in it. And so making it about us is like taking the Mona Lisa, pulling it out of the frame and, and using it as a placemat to eat McDonald's on or something like that, all right? We're, we need to make worship about the object of worship, which is God. And so, and so, so I know for some people, worship through music is just not your thing, and that's, that's okay. That's, there are lots of ways to worship, but I think if, like, a lot of people who tell me that, I don't think they're doing anything outside of, I don't think they're trying to connect with God and worship in any other way, 
right, just because they don't like that, so they think, I don't need to worship God in any other way, right? Find what it is that draws your heart higher and makes God look bigger and you look smaller, and consistently do that thing. Find that thing to make God seem big to you, and you will remember the gospel. You will have that revealed to you when you do that habit consistently. Now, for us at Res City, we try to do a lot of things that are trying to draw our hearts back towards revealing God to ourselves, back towards worship, back towards um, re- unmasking situations so we can see it from a God's eye perspective. Everything we're doing is ultimately trying to get us back to that or revealing it to people for the first time. And so we have community groups that meet during the work where we read scripture, we dig into it, we have, um, we're doing stuff where, where we're taking the gospel out into our city, we're trying to bless the city that we're in, trying to do good things in the community, and try to show Jesus off, and, and that changes us too as we do it, um, we're, we're, everything we're trying to do is bringing us back to that. And Sunday mornings is actually one of the most important ways we do it. Sunday is like a tune-up. A weekly tune-up where you come in with God's people, you worship, the gospel is revealed to you, and then you go out. And that changes your situations. It changes the way you view things. And so what we do is we close every service by doing uh, several different things that are all, again, a part of this revealing the gospel to us. Um, The worship team is going to come back up here in just a a minute or so, and they're going to lead us in worship where we're going to try to to be aware of revealing the gospel to us, revealing Jesus coming on the clouds with glory to us. We're going to have prayer going on in the back. If you want someone to pray for you, we'll have someone in the back who will just pray for whatever it is you're going through, to go to God with it instead of uh, not dealing with it, instead of just trying to escape it. Going to God, dealing with whatever it is you need prayer for, and there will be someone in the back waiting for you to do that. And we do communion every single week where we're remembering, like Jesus said, uh, this, is God, this is his body broken and shed for us. So we, we do this every week to remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us through uh, taking and eating and drinking, right? It's supposed to refresh us in that gospel. So I invite you to, to take part in all those things now as we close the service. Whether you're a visitor here or not, please come and take communion. Even if you're not a regular attender, we would love to have you do it. Please worship God with all you have. Please uh, take prayer if you need it. Again, even if you're just visiting and you want prayer, we'd be happy to pray for you. All right, so the worship team's gonna come up and we're gonna enter in that time as we close our service today. Lord, I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us over and over again. Help us to be willing to uh, take leaps of faith, God, when, when we feel paralyzed or we feel in despair in some way. Help, help give us the power to, to take the jump, to trust you, even if we don't know exactly what's going to happen, and to believe that you are the one who does something about evil in the world, who does something about who we are inside of us, God. We thank you for the opportunity to, to come together every Sunday to worship you and to gather throughout the week to do that as well. I pray that we would not take that for granted. Help us to, to never view your gospel, to view your son as boring. Lord, We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.